And so one of the things I've been interested in lately is this concept of wilderness. I think we all, having lived in Montana, as, as we all do, appreciate the concept of wilderness, appreciate the saving of important wilderness landscapes. But when we look at the definition of a wilderness, it's defined as a region that's uninhabited and inhospitable. When we look at then the prehistory of Montana and the Native American history of places like Montana and Yellowstone National Park, there's 11,000 years of occupation of those landscapes. And the only reason they're uninhabited is because the United States government removed Native American people. So there's a bit of irony yeah. that we call those places wilderness. And, and it's great to say that, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-wilderness. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's interesting just to think about that. And also the fact that, you know, I think archaeology, many of the archaeologists that Nancy just talked about, uh, have been working for a long time to establish the culture history of places like Yellowstone and Montana. And our own archaeological surveys in Yellowstone National Park with all of our students have, have shown me that even on a landscape like this in the background is the Sky Rim Trail, up in the Gallatin Mountains, where you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be archaeological sites showing Native American occupation. Places that we truly would think would be inhospitable have tons of archaeology. And so obviously Native Americans have lived in these landscapes for 11,000 years, and to um, call it wildernesses, maybe we just need a different term uh, that, that doesn't have such sort of ethnocentric connotations. So there are 26 tribes that consult with Yellowstone National Park's archaeologists, uh, a variety of uh, different tribes from all over the region uh, are mostly uh, very much interested, obviously, in the bison herd, um, but a lot of these tribes also consult regularly on projects having to do with uh, archaeology or anthropology or other things that might be of interest to Native American tribes. So the most famous Native American, I think, historical event in Yellowstone National Park, of course, was the Nez Perce flight, uh, where Chief Joseph led 700 of his tribal members of the Nez Perce through Yellowstone, right through the heart of Yellowstone. And remember, Yellowstone National Park was established in 1872, right? So there were tourists in the park, one or, one or two of which were killed by the fleeing Nez Perce as they, as they were pursued by the U.S. Cavalry through Yellowstone National Park at that time. So can you imagine being a, a tourist in Yellowstone, having newly established this national park, and here are Chief Joseph and 700 of his tribal members uh, trying to get up to Sitting Bull at his encampment in Saskatchewan. Of course, they didn't make it past the Bear Paw battlefield there, but the point is that this is a, you know, a very significant part of the Yellowstone National Park's history that could also be highlighted. So part of my paper here is to highlight some things that Yellowstone National Park could, could highlight to tourists, and we do see some signage about the Nez Perce in Yellowstone. There's the Nez Perce Crossing, there's a sign there uh, along um, the Firehill River. There's that Nez Perce picnic area. Um, and that was actually one of the places where one of the European uh, American tourists was killed. And so there is some signage, but my point is there could be a lot more, right? I mean, that's, that was an amazing thing in 1877. Between 1851 and 1868, I don't think a lot of us realized, and I didn't realize it until I was doing research for my Before Yellowstone book, that most of the eastern portion of what we now call Yellowstone National Park up till 1868 as part of that first Fort Laramie Treaty was the Crow Reservation, all the way from the eastern shore of Yellowstone Lake and then the Yellowstone River 
from the south end of the lake and then out at Fishing Bridge on the north end up through Gardner, all that area was the Crow Reservation. Of course, the second Fort Laramie Treaty reduced that quite a lot. But at least in terms of my review, the, my amateur archival review of, of the mapping, it does look like the sliver of the Montana portion of Yellowstone actually coexisted with the Crow Reservation up until um, 1882, after which the reservation was pushed pushed far to the east of its current, current location. The Crow Reservation and Yellowstone National Park were one and the same up in the area around Cook City and uh, all the way over toward Gardner in that Montana portion of, of Yellowstone National Park. That could also be a really great thing to, to show. I don't think many people know that that is the case, that the Crow Reservation pushed that far to the west. And so this is another aspect of Native American history that could be highlighted in, in a park which is largely considered a natural park, right? So in the national park system, as a government agency, most national parks are either natural or cultural parks. So you have Gettysburg National Battlefield, right? That's a perfect example of a cultural park as opposed to Yellowstone, which is a natural park with its geology and beautiful um, waterfalls and, and bison herds and things like that. And so it's, it's a, I love it for those reasons, but I think in calling it a natural park, we are ignoring 11,000 years of history that I think the park could do a much better job of, of highlighting. So part of our research out of the University of Montana recently has been to highlight some of those things. So the Montana, the before Yellowstone book is part of that process, and the Yellowstone archaeologists that work for Yellowstone are trying to push these ideas quite strongly as well. So just as two examples, you know, the Nez First Flight, as well as the, um, the presence of the Crow Reservation, I mean, there's absolutely nothing in the park that would lead you to believe that the Crow Reservation ever was there. And I'm sure it's surprising to most, most people in this room as it was to me. I also want to talk about another type of cultural resource in Yellowstone that I think would be a really amazing opportunity for the park to disseminate information about uh, Native American history in the park. And I think it has a certain amount of synergy with this idea that Yellowstone is a natural place, right? This beautiful natural park. Everybody is excited by the volcanism and the fact that it's a huge caldera there and could blow up any second, you know? And, and the obsidian is a huge part of that, right? And, and we all see obsidian when we're hiking on different trails in Yellowstone and people sort of know that it's a volcanic rock. Um, and people, most people also sort of know that Native Americans collected obsidian to make stone tools out of it. And there's a couple of places in Yellowstone where obsidian was collected a lot. I'm going to talk about those here today. There really are no Native American cultural trails or sites in the park. And I think the opportunity that obsidian provides is this link between that natural geology and then to bring people into the cultural interest area as well to emphasize this Native American history idea. So certainly the Nespers Trail of the Preservation, um, I would be leery, and I think the park would be leery as well, of, of showing tourists where archaeological sites really are, for obvious reasons that Nancy touched on. But the obsidian sources may be a good opportunity to, to sort of link that natural geology and cultural Native American history. So that's what we're going to talk about here uh, for the next few minutes. And so I always like to describe Native Americans as Yellowstone and Montana and Wyoming's original hard rock miners. I think everybody in this room, especially knows that Native Americans 
I collected obsidian to make stone tools, but I don't know that they know the degree to which they collected obsidian to make stone tools. And if you go to the top of Obsidian Cliff here, um, there's dozens and dozens of pits and trenches where Native Americans over the last 11,000 years collected obsidian, not just in a casual way. It's not like they're just walking around, picking up a piece of obsidian, making a tool. They're collecting hundreds of pounds of obsidian, making stone tools, they're digging trenches and pits, excavating into the top of the, of the obsidian cliff and other quarries in Yellowstone in order to get the best quality rock. This is their survival, this is how they were living, right? They had to have stone, and obsidian in Yellowstone was a really, really important resource for Native Americans. It also is quite visible in the landscapes. That's another reason I think someplace like Obsidian Cliff provides a wonderful opportunity for Yellowstone to build a trail perhaps to the top, maybe clear out some of those trenches and pits that are up there to show people just how active this obsidian procurement and collection was over the last 11,000 years. So each one of these stars highlights a location where Native Americans collected obsidian. So these are all locations where a volcano erupted, magma came out, it cooled quite rapidly. Obsidian, this volcanic glass, or the Earth's sharpest natural substance uh, was formed, right? And so perfect for making stone tools. The two that I want to highlight again are Obsidian Cliff and Cougar Creek. And so both of these obsidian formations uh, occurred in the last, say, 500,000 years. Uh, Cougar Creek erupted over by West Yellowstone about 400,000 years ago, and Obsidian Cliff, which is between Mammoth and Norris, right along that Grand Loop Road there, you drive right by it as you go between those two places, was about 180,000 years ago. So fairly recent, really, in geological time. Uh, they've all been used extensively by Native Americans. Uh, this shows you the location of the caldera outline here. And so the Cougar Creek source is very easily accessible. That's another thing I think that's important if Yellowstone's going to pick someplace to, to build a trail or to build public access, it has to be accessible. And so this Cougar Creek source is just an easy drive from West Yellowstone up to the Nice Creek Trailhead and it takes you right there. The Nice Creek Trail actually goes right within 100 meters of the Cougar Creek Obsidian source. The same, obviously, is true for Obsidian Cliff. You drive right by it as you go between Norris and Mammoth, as I just said, and so that also is, you know, you want to have accessibility for people that can want to be able to just drive up or walk up a boardwalk and that sort of thing. So these two locations where Native Americans collected obsidian are perfect uh, potential spots for a trail or other signage that I'll talk about. Lots of evidence of use. Uh, boy, as I said, both of these uh, places have been very well studied. We know that Obsidian Cliff Obsidian has been used for 11,000 years. There's Clovis projectile points that were used by Native American peoples to hunt mammoths and camels and horses. Uh, that the obsidian was collected at Obsidian Cliff 11,000 years ago. Uh, the first well-established Native American culture in Yellowstone is called the Cody culture. And there's, they were really, really loving the obsidian cliff obsidian uh, 9,000 years ago. And I think this is an incredible story also that could be highlighted at, at these locations, is that about 2,000 years ago, Native Americans from places as far away as like Ohio were traveling to Yellowstone to get obsidian cliff obsidian, carry it back, and inter it in the mounds of their uh, dead family members and, and things like that. So there's one mound in Ohio that has 300 pounds of obsidian cliff obsidian. 
and they probably followed much the same route that Lewis and Clark did. In the 19th century, they took canoes from the Pittsburgh area, went down to the Mississippi through St. Louis, up the Missouri, into uh, to eventually make it into places very close to Yellowstone. And so that's probably a very similar route that these Ohio Native Americans took 2,000 years ago to collect this, just to get the rock, because it was really important to, uh, to have those exotic materials when they interred their uh, dead family members and things like that. So that's just crazy to think about. And obviously another really interesting story that could be highlighted in, in a display or as part of a trail complex at Obsidian Cliff. Again, both sources are very well studied. Obsidian Cliff was studied after the 88 fire. Fire is awful, right? But it does clear the landscape and make it easier to see things on the ground. And so in 1989, 1990, Yellowstone hired archaeologists from Montana State University, Les Davis, and, and some of his archaeologists, Steve Alberg, led by Ann Johnson, and Adrian Anderson from the National Park Service, did a full archaeological survey of Obsidian Cliff and used all that information to get it listed as a National Historic Landmark. So it's only one of two stone quarries listed on the National Historic Landmark list. The other one is in, in Hawaii, a basalt quarry there. So they did a really great study in 1989 and were able to record all those pits and trenches. So we know where they are, right? <laughs> you know, we can build a boardwalk trail up to these locations and we knew exactly where they are um, if, if we were to do that. University of Montana, uh, Go Grizz have uh, also studied... Go Cats! Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get into a fight here. Both, both of my kids go to Montana State, so I can't be too, too critical. I can't even get my own kids to go to my university. Of Montana. But anyway, a lot of students like to go to the University of Montana, and we study at places like Obsidian Cliff. This is the picture on the left down there is my students staring in awe at the millions of artifacts of obsidian at, on the southern edge of Obsidian Cliff. Uh, and then two, three years ago, we did a really great survey up along the entire top part of, of the Cougar Creek Rye-like Dome and recorded all the obsidian procurement trenches and pits and features of that location as well. So well mapped, we know where they are, we can do it in a way that's sensitive to the archaeological features, but also highlights some of the really cool archaeology that's there. And so the question then would be, should the park add cultural tourism at these obsidian sources? And so what I'll do in the next couple of slides is talk about some of the pros and cons of that that uh, the park should consider before they were to proceed with that. So some of the benefits of increasing public awareness and access certainly is to enhance these ideas that I've been talking about of the really interesting and important uh, 11,000 years of Native American history in Yellowstone National Park. Um, and then just the science of archaeology is an important part of that as well, and uh, could focus some of the tourism around uh, archaeology, because a lot of people like archaeology, as you know, and they like to think about it along the lines of like Indiana Jones and things, so it's, it's kind of fun for people to, to learn about archaeology, and, and, and that would be something else that would be fun to increase and highlight about Yellowstone, and there is a lot of archaeology there. I think it would bring a new type of tourist to Yellowstone that was interested in this, not everybody certainly wants to go to Yellowstone to see the bison herds and to see bears along the roads and, and to go to Old Faithful and Grand Prismatic. But obviously archaeology and Native American history could, could attract additional types of, of tourism that maybe they don't see at this point. Um, and I think it's just an obligation. 
in all of state. It is an obligation of the federal government and the Yellowstone National Park to remember Native American <laughs> cultural history here uh, and to recognize those important achievements of people that lived there for 11,000 years. Put it simply, it's, it's shameful <laughs> that there is nothing in the park that really has much to do with Native American history. So some of the problems of increasing public access to obsidian, it's going to cost money, right? You're going to have to build the trails. Uh, it's going to cost ranger, ranger energy. You'll probably have to have rangers at those locations monitoring the access to the archaeological sites at the obsidian quarries. Obsidian is really sharp, you know? And, you know, the best example of this is I was making stone tools in my front yard once with obsidian and didn't clean up so well. My wife went out to garden and bare feet and sliced her foot right over. So it's really sharp, you know what I'm saying? Some famous archaeologists have used obsidian blades in heart, open heart surgery, you know? So it's sharp stuff and, and it could be dangerous for tourists and so you'd have to have some way to to prevent them from picking it up, right? And, and also then you, that could also lead to site disturbances and disturbing of archeological sites is nothing that any federal agency wants to be responsible for. And so anytime you increase access to these places, it increases the chances that somebody's gonna go in there and wanna take obsidian. I think just last month, there was somebody arrested in Yellowstone with three big boxes full of obsidian that they had oh. taken from one of these quarries. And so it does happen. There's a lot of people really interested in making stone tools and they're not necessarily aware of the laws that prevent that. It is illegal <laughs> to do that, but still it would be a concern, right? And one that I'm totally um, in agreement with, you'd have to have some sort of protections to the sites and not have people just going in and out of them without any protection of the sites. But there are some ways you can do it, and so here's some ideas for increasing access to Obsidian Cliff. Uh, the Sulfa Terra Trail is a trail that starts right along the Grand Loop Road, sort of halfway between Norris and Mammoth. That trail goes really close to the southern edge of Obsidian Cliff. Not a lot of people know that, but it, it does, and so it would be really easy to, to reroute that trail just very slightly to go right up to the edge of the obsidian. That's kind of remote, it would be harder to man with a ranger, so I'm not sure that that ever would be done. My ideal scenario is a trail to the top of Obsidian Cliff from the Grand Loop Road there, uh, even right where that roadside display is. I don't know if you're all aware, but the roadside display at Obsidian Cliff is the first roadside display in any national park, <laughs> which is pretty cool. It's actually on the National Register. That signage <laughs> is on the National Register itself. But from there, you could uh, build a boardwalk trail up to the top. I mean, there's boardwalk trails for everything else in the park, literally. You could easily build one up there to the top, to the places where the trenches and pits are, so people could really see how active that quarry would be. That would be the most expensive, but it'd probably be the easiest to control, too, because it's right off the road. That would be fairly easy to have rangers uh, at those locations. There's a, the museum at Norris. It's a ranger, like a National Park Service ranger museum, I think is what it is. That could easily add an element of about obsidian, since Obsidian Cliff is only maybe uh, five or six miles north of there. And there's obsidian all over that Norris campground, <laughs> if any of you have ever been there. So that would also be another place where you could have a quarry museum that maybe takes up some of that space with the Ranger Museum. And then Cougar Creek might even be a better one because it's, it's not quite so obvious. Uh, the Nice Creek Trail again, at Seven Mile Bridge, if you're coming in from West Yellowstone, 
Uh, you cross the Madison River, there's Seven Mile Bridge, the Nice Creek Trail then winds up onto that plateau where the Cooper Creek uh, Obsidian Quarry is. It's much smaller. Like, Obsidian Cliff is huge. It's, it really has dozens and dozens of pits and trenches. It encompasses a huge area. The Cooper Creek Quarry is way smaller. There's only a handful of these pits and trenches. The Obsidian procurement at that location didn't come anything close to what we see at Obsidian Cliff. And, and so you could have a spur trail from the Nice Creek Trail that winds around the entire top of the Riley Dome with maybe signage along the way uh, about obsidian use at that location. You could also the uh, road into West Yellowstone along the east side down along the Gallatin that goes eventually into West Yellowstone crosses Cooper Creek. That creek goes right up to uh, the Riley Dome. There could be another trail that, that would be dedicated to the Cooper Creek obsidian location. And at the very least, maybe just an information display at the Seven Mile Bridge parking area. And then, you know, there's, there's so much information you could do here with the caveats that, you know, this would obviously increase public uh, awareness of that visitation, which could jeopardize the archaeological resources. And so those are the dangerous things. That's probably the reason that's never been done, is because the Park Service doesn't want to be responsible for uh, endangering these important archaeological places. But I think at some point, you have to use these resources in a way that's going to benefit the public and try to do it in a way that's sensitive to the archaeology and, and maybe that trail to the top of Obsidian Cliff would be the, probably the easiest way to restrict access. That's probably what I would, what I would do. To talk, go back to that concept of wilderness that I introduced at the beginning of the, the talk, this is, I always show this slide because this is an illustration that Eric Carlson produced for the Before Yellowstone book. Uh, the one on the right is, is the illustration I asked Eric, who's an outstanding archaeologist as well as a painter and, and amazing artist, to show the first Native American people ever to see Old Faithful. I mean, whenever we see Old Faithful for the first time, it's pretty amazing, but can you imagine being the first person ever to see it 11,000, 12,000 years ago? That just would blown their minds, you know? And so this is his imagining of that. And I wanted that to be the cover of the Before Yellowstone book, so you can see that this, I, I thought, would have made a great cover, but when I showed it to the University of Washington Press, they were like, that's not a cover. That's, that's, they literally said, that's not a cover. I paid Eric to do that for me. <laughs> so that illustration is in the, it's in the book, but it's not the cover. This is the cover that they chose. So you can you can see you can see the whole natural. Everybody thinks about Yellowstone the same way as this natural place, and I really regret agreeing to this cover because it totally emphasizes that wilderness concept. It doesn't even show anything about people, and so I, I really regret agreeing to this cover. They thought it was eye catching, but this looks like every other Yellowstone book cover. <laughs> you know, they all look like that. So when you see it in a bookstore. That's, that's the cover they went along with. If it ever gets reprinted, uh, I really would like to go with something that emphasizes the role of Native American history of people uh, in, in Yellowstone. And that, that is it. <laughs>